Hey there, this is Mike and you're listening to Feeling Twisty. I'm really glad you're here. I just had a wonderful conversation with a woman in the checkout line at the market. This little elderly woman moved in real close to me, uh, like that Seinfeld episode. She was a bit of a close talker. <laughs> she got real close to me and asked me if I believe in Jesus. I said, yes, ma'am, I certainly do. She said, good, now repeat after me. And then she started to recite the sinner's prayer. If you grew up in church like I did, you're familiar with it or some form of it. Here's one version. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart. I trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Now, when she started to recite that prayer, I didn't follow along and she caught that pretty quick. She insisted that I recite the prayer with her. Now, do this, say this with me, she said. And I smiled and said, I know where Jesus is, and I don't have to recite that prayer to find him. She didn't let up, though. She wanted, to ask, uh, wanted me to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me. I smiled again and said, I'm not doing that. There's no need. That's when she started going back and forth, right there in the checkout aisle, speaking in tongues, then switching back to English to tell me that I must say the prayer every time I hear it to please the Lord. I smiled, and at that point, it was time for me to pay at the checkout. If I'd had more time, we could have had an even more interesting conversation, I'm sure. She's a very sweet lady, an elderly woman who holds firmly to her beliefs. I recognize that state. I dwelled in it, a similar one, for many years following my church's doctrine uh, religiously. I follow a different faith now, but it isn't full of rules and threats. It's love. That's it. God is love. God isn't judgment and condemnation. Who I really am is love, and so are you. My awareness of being, God, loves me so much it gives me every desire of my heart, even if it's harmful or petty or envious. Anything I desire is mine if I believe it is so. I don't have to follow strict regimens or attend a church or even meditate for that matter. It comes down to who and what I assume I am. Neville quotes Sir Anthony Eden often in his lectures. I'm sure you've heard this quote. An assumption, though false, if persisted in, will harden into fact. Whatever I am assuming for myself, even if it isn't true at the moment, if I continue in that assumption, I will express it or be confronted by it. I don't think any of us have any trouble assuming awful things for ourselves and others. I can tell by looking at Facebook posts from my friends. I can look back at my life and see how often my hateful assumptions were proven true. I see now, though, that my assumptions didn't build up over time based on my experiences. It's the reverse. My experiences were caused and will always be caused by my assumptions. 
by what I hold true for myself and my world. If someone assumes insurance companies or the government are out to screw them over, then that's what they'll experience. I'm seeing a lot of that from posts centering around Hurricane Laura in southwest Louisiana. Many folks sharing their horror stories in dealing with FEMA and their homeowner's insurance. Well, their experience is coming from what they are assuming, what they're imagining for themselves. I know people in my family who've lived their lives under the assumption that they can eat, drink, and smoke anything they want with no negative consequences. And they lived out their lives to very old ages with none of the diseases that we hear come with that type of behavior. And I have some in the family who watched their diets carefully and abstained from alcohol and weed and tobacco and everything else and died from all sorts of diseases. It wasn't what they ingested or used that killed them. It was what they believed to be true. What they decided was true for them. If you've studied Neville at all, you've read or heard this quote, Can man decree a thing and have it come to pass? Most decidedly he can. There's more to that quote, but I'm sure you've heard it. You likely also know it comes from a verse in the Bible. Job chapter 22, verse 28, Thou shalt decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. That's the translation that I grew up hearing. The word decree had me <laughs> imagining all sorts of weird things, like some royal court, like a king making a pronouncement, a royal decree. Hear ye, hear ye, his royal highness decrees, blah, blah, blah. That's just the word used by the translators when they wrote the King James Bible over 400 years ago. The word, translated as decree, means to cut off or divide, and it means to decide. When I decide to leave the state I'm currently in and occupy a new one, I am cutting off life to the other. A different translation says it this way, and I like this translation, what you decide on will be done, and light will shine on your ways. Whatever I decide will be expressed in my life. It doesn't say that whatever I decide, if I go to church or ask for someone's approval or do three formal sessions or meditate or go to the right school. It says whatever I decide, whatever I assume, if I persist in it, I will experience. Persist is another word that used to bug me. Neville uses it quite often, and I hear some who teach Neville give a thumbs down to use of that word. I'm not sure why they're saying that. I guess it's because some people hear the word persist and they think, like I did, that it's going to be difficult. And I get that. I used to think the same thing. The first definition of the word confirms it. It says persist means to continue firmly or obstinately in an opinion or a course of action in spite of difficulty, opposition, or failure. Well, I don't follow that definition. Definition number two says that persist means to continue to exist. Hmm. There's no struggle there. I don't have a problem with using persist because that's what it means to me. So whatever I decide to experience, I will, if I continue to exist in that state. For most of my life, though, I waffled. I was a waffler. It took me forever to make up my mind on just about anything, 
When I was a kid, I'd go to the toy store with my mom, and I'd stand there in the toy aisle, staring at the toys, afraid to make the wrong choice. I didn't want to pick a toy and regret not getting another. When I was a little older, my parents offered me a cash prize if I lost 20 pounds. My dad said he'd give me a $50 bill if I lost the 20 pounds, and that was a lot to a 10-year-old. And when I got that $50 bill, I didn't spend it. I tacked it to my Empire Strikes bulletin board, and it stayed there for two years. I was afraid to spend it. I acted like that was the only $50 I was ever going to get, and I didn't want to lose it. And that's how I was about money for many, many years. Anytime I'd get money, I'd hold on to it, fearing I wouldn't get any more. Maybe you've done that. You get a big tax return, and if you're like me, you see that as something finite. Oh, here's all this money, but oh crap, it's going to go away fast. What are we going to do after that? I have to wait till next tax return to get money again? That's the way I thought. That was a state I continued to exist in for decades, holding on and losing the money faster than I thought possible. As long as I dwell in a state of lack, even when money drops from heaven, I'll be broke again soon, or on the verge of being broke, constantly living in fear of being broke again. It always comes down to my state. Now back to me waffling. If there was a picture in the dictionary next to the word indecisive, you'd see my beautiful face. <laughs> I can look back on my life and see the times when I did stick to my decision, when I continued to exist in that new version of myself, whether it was good or bad, I expressed it. Those times when I didn't follow advice or worry about what others might think is when I became the person I wanted to be at that time. I've told the story about my relationship with food as a kid several times on here. When I had dropped from 149 pounds to 70 pounds when I was 12 or 13, it was because of my assumptions about food and about myself. I decided that food was bad for me and that it would make me fat, and it didn't matter what my parents or the doctors told me. Once I started getting better, I was technically recovering from anorexia, or I think they called it a recovered anorexic, I don't know. Anyway, I was getting better. I'd put on a few pounds. And so our church, they had a television program, wanted to interview me for the show and wanted me to talk about how, how God healed me and all that. It was something like, uh, it was a local version of uh, Pat Robertson's 700 Club or Jim Baker and Tammy Faye, the PTL Club. Remember that from the 80s? Good times. <laughs> they wanted me to talk about how I overcame anorexia. Immediately following my interview, they had an expert on who said that since I was a male with anorexia, that I must be homosexual. And since I was homosexual, that's why I was worried about my body. And since homosexuality is a sin, that might be the root of my problem. So here's this expert, this psychologist, telling me that the problem was I was a homosexual. That's why I was concerned about the way I looked. <laughs> Isn't that freaking ridiculous? Homosexuality, according to the expert there, caused my eating disorder because any real young man or normal young man wouldn't have any problems with her, his body or with food. Real boys don't do that. And that doctor could have listed all sorts of reasons why I was starving myself, but she would have been wrong every time. 
There was only one cause, even though I didn't realize it at the time. That cause is my own imagination. That day I decided food was the enemy. I remember it clearly. It was the day I moved into that harmful state, that starving state. I had gone in for my weekly weigh-in at the local diet center, and I'd gained half a pound. Can you believe it? Oh, my God. And the weight counselor freaked out, and she said it, I gained the half a pound because I'd eaten two children's aspirin that week. Well, right then, that was it for me. Food is the devil. And I swore it off. And right there, I moved into that new state, that state of fear and starvation with that decision right there in the diet center. Many years later, when I decided to become a reporter for radio, I didn't have any training. My degree was in elementary education, and I wasn't even teaching school. I was working as a claims adjuster for a big insurance company. I didn't have anything that I was supposed to have to be a reporter. I didn't have the right degree, any of the experience. The only thing I had was my desire and what I did with it. Well, that's two things. <laughs> I was bold that year. That was a crazy year. Kim had encouraged me to go for it. She said, I have faith in you. You can do this. And I've told that story before as well. I'm not going into all the details this time. But I had a high-paying job at the insurance company. We were doing really well. But I wanted to be on the radio, and I wanted to be a reporter. It's what I wanted to do. I imagine sitting in front of the microphone and hearing my name said at the, uh, by the guy who does the voice uh, or does the intro for the newscast. You know, it was something like, and now live from the Kix96 studio in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Anyway, I approached the bosses at the station and there weren't any openings at the time. The news director, he was kind of a grumpy guy, told me there wasn't a chance of me getting a job there. But I knew it was done. I knew what I wanted. I'd made that decision and I wasn't going to let them tell me otherwise. Now, even though there was no job for me, I went ahead and told the insurance company that I was leaving, but I was being nice. What I was doing was I had a little moment of needing, feeling like I needed to hedge my bet. So instead of giving them two weeks notice, I gave them a month and a half or something like that, uh, almost two months notice. <laughs> I'll be leaving, but not for two more months, just letting you know. I said I was going to work as a reporter, but I didn't tell them what radio station I was going to. Now, those two months passed pretty quickly. When my last day at the insurance job came, I still didn't have a job with the radio station, but I remained in my new state. I knew it was done. A couple of days later, the station manager called me and hired me as a field reporter. Well, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to be a field reporter. I'd already imagined myself sitting in the newsroom with the microphone in front of me, not writing stories for other people to read. I wanted to be an anchor, but I took the job. The news director, that grumpy old man, told me after I was hired that the field reporter job was the only thing I'd be getting. Well, within a month, the afternoon anchor got sick, and I had to fill in for that day. Two weeks later, I replaced her as afternoon anchor. My news director continued to tell me that I had no business being an anchor. You don't have the experience. You need to pay your dues. Do the grunt work first, like everyone else. Well, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do the grunt work. I didn't want to do it like everybody else. I continued to exist in that state 
I guess if you want to name it, successful radio news anchor state, <laughs> regardless of what uh, my news director was telling me. And less than a year later, I replaced him as news director. I didn't scheme or go behind his back and try to get him fired. I just continued being me in that state. I remained in my state and things worked together in ways I couldn't have predicted. The following year, I was hired by the radio station's competitor, hired on as news director there, and given more than double my salary at the previous station. Much more than I could have predicted. I couldn't have worked all that in detail. That's why Neville says, don't worry about the details, how it's going to be done. Do what the Bible says. I, my I am, declares the end from the beginning. And it worked out better than I could have thought possible pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I made the decision to be something more than what others said was possible, and I stuck to that decision. I continued to exist in the state of my wish fulfilled. I don't need to do anything or to make something happen, to force it. Knowing what I want, I decide it's done. I assume that it's done. I take it for granted. And that I say that a lot because I want you to understand that's the feeling that I feel. That's the knowing. It's just a subtle movement. It's a decision that I make from deciding I no longer want to express this particular state. I want this in my life. I want to be this or have this. I make the decision and I take it for granted that it's done. I trust my true self, my dimensionally greater self, to bring it about perfectly. Before I go, I wanted to answer a question from a listener. Yulia had several wonderful questions and suggestions for me to talk about on up upcoming episodes. I told her I would start answering her questions in this episode. In Neville's 1948 lecture, Assumptions Harden into Fact, he describes seeing a blue light sometimes when he meditates. I'll read some of the quote. Another thing you may observe in meditation is a lovely liquid blue light. The nearest thing on earth to which I can compare it is burning alcohol. You know, when you put alcohol on the plum pudding at Christmas time and set it aflame, the lovely liquid blue flame that envelops the pudding until you blow it out. That flame is the nearest thing to the blue light which comes on the forehead of a man in meditation. He goes on to describe seeing beautiful orbs and patterns, geometric shapes while meditating. Yulia said that she's seen those things since her childhood, and she likes to think of them as fairies. That's cool. And she says she does see the blue light when she meditates. Her question is, is if I have experienced any of those things? And the short answer is yes. Those and many insanely beautiful things while meditating. And when I say meditate, I'm not talking about meditating in the traditional sense or what we think of meditating in the Western world or at least what I think we think, <laughs> my perception of what traditional meditation is. I could be lying in bed, sitting in a tub. Well, it's me. It's probably going to be me sitting at a chair, in a chair, a comfortable chair with a cocktail in my hand. And I don't do anything special or change my breathing. I just chill for a few moments and relax. I drift into the silence for a little while. I don't always close my eyes either. So if someone in the room is watching me, they may not even know what I'm doing. They may notice that I'm spaced out, that I'm not answering their questions. <laughs> That's happened before. And I make a little shift in my awareness. 
I want to tell you, though, I never saw or heard anything that Neville describes or any of these other things that I've uh, experienced when I set out to make it happen. When I was trying to force it, it would not work for me. When I first read that lecture of Neville's and he describes this blue light, I thought, oh, yeah, give me some of that. Give me some of that magic blue light, baby. And it just didn't work. It didn't work. For, I mean, it was months. Months. I never saw it. I thought maybe it was the wrong music. Maybe I need to meditate longer. And back then I was doing what I consider the traditional methods of tr meditating. I had music and had the room nice and dark. And sometimes I would put earplugs in to silence everything. Now I'm perfectly okay with noise. I can slip into the silence because I am the silence at any time with any noise going on around me. In fact, that helps me. I could just shut my eyes and become aware of the sound of the ceiling fan, the sound of traffic outside, the sound of my dog playing down the hall or my kids banging around the kitchen. It doesn't disturb me. I'm aware of all of it, and I just shift my awareness from this body. I'm not saying I detach completely from the body, but I'm just aware of being so much more than just this body. That's what you are, too. So just get into the silence and let those things, those beautiful things, come up as they do. I love you. This is Feeling Twisty.